C.S. Lewis said, we, we were promised sufferings, they were part of the program. Uh, we were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it's diff- different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not in imagination. So here we are in a Bible study, in a Sunday school class, considering these hard subjects, and we're on the front end of this quote. We're considering it uh, in theory, uh, in one way. Obviously, we want to know what God's Word says, but, but then also we recognize that when we are the ones that are suffering or in pain uh, and sorrow, then it's different. It's, it, it's not that easy, and, and Lewis emphasizes that again in his book on uh, the problem of pain. He says, I'm writing a book about this, and I agree with what I'm writing, but I'm not always that good at being able to apply it in the moment. And of course, like everything else in the Christian faith, uh, it's easy to be a Christian when it's easy. But it's important to be a Christian when it's not. That's when the real test comes. That's when the real challenge comes. And so we do want to look at Job today. Job is the classic um, uh, portion of Scripture that deals with this question of suffering and other related subjects. You've heard the phrase, the patience of Job. It's become really part of our English language, though many of those who use it to, des- they describe, uh, to describe, they use it to describe their need for patience are describing suffering which does not even begin to compare with what Job suffered. So Job is one of the great sufferers in Scripture. And in the drama that bears his name, the themes are worked out uh, of human suffering and human sin, of man's folly, of God's wisdom, of despair, and of hope. All those things are abundantly present in a, what is a fairly long book of the Bible. And so in the book of Job, we're confronted with the basic problem of what we would look at as undeserved pain. And that is what, part of the issue surrounding pain and suffering is, is justice. Is this fair? Why me? Why not them? Why do they seem to be doing so well and I'm not? Or sometimes the other way around. Why are they suffering and I'm not? You ever feel guilty about that? Um, so... Uh, In in the face of such suffering, man will inevitably stumble in his attempts to find answers. Uh, Remember, because we are so finite, we can't see very far, we don't know very much, and his solutions will not move beyond, sometimes, our own tentative groping in the dark. But from speculation to wisdom, there is one sure way, and it's summed up in the great conclusion in Job 28, verse 28, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, Um, uh, and to depart from evil is understanding. That's the thing, you know, you've heard me say many times, there are many things we don't know, but there are some things we do know, and this is one of the things Job says he knows when uh, when we get toward the end, is that uh, that is what's important. And it reminds, it's similar to the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. G.K. Chesterton, his favorite book of the Bible is Job. He wrote a a piece on it. Uh, Some of the things I have in here today I, I drew from him. And he said about the book of Job, Verbally speaking, the enigmas of Jehovah seem darker and more desolate than the enigmas of Job. 
Yet Job was comfortless before the speech of Jehovah and is comforted after it. He has been told nothing, but he feels the terrible and tingling atmosphere of something which is too good to be told. The refusal of God to explain his design is itself a burning hint of his design. The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. Uh, So the opening chapters not only set the scene for the great debate which is going to follow as Job's friends come along, but it also takes us behind the scenes to see the powerful forces of evil which have to be taken into account if we're going to make sense of the suffering of the innocent. And so we're introduced to the subtle and relentless activity of the evil one. Now, let me put this in context. In in the previous weeks, I've pointed out, sometimes we do suffer because of our sin. There is a direct connection. Uh, uh, There is punishment for sin. There is a a relationship to sin or cause and effect. But in this case, we have a different situation. So, again, we're introduced to the subtle and relentless activity of the evil one. And we're reminded that um, beyond the world that we see, there is an invisible realm, a spiritual realm, and forces that are at work. And that realm is real, whose influences upon the course of human history and individual lives uh, is really beyond our full comprehension. Um, That's probably an overstatement. Uh, beyond our comprehension. Uh, there's always more that we don't know than there is of what we do know. Always. And so the evil spirit, uh, the evil spirit plays a key, the evil spirit that plays this key role, of course, is Satan. Uh, the Hebrew word means the adversary. And he appears here as elsewhere in scripture as the enemy of God, the enemy of God's people. The other titles which are used in the Bible refer to this basic enmity. He's the devil, the Greek word diabolos, meaning the slanderer. Uh, So in the Garden of Eden, he slanders God. And he persuades Eve that God's word isn't to be taken at face value and that God is no friend of those that he created. That was a lie. Likewise, in the opening chapters of Job, he slanders a godly man. Remember, we're told that Job was a blameless man. He wasn't a perfect man. Uh, Just a note here about the the use of that word. Uh, We can't be sinless, but we can be blameless. So when we sin, we confess our sins, and he cleanses us of all unrighteousness, and then we are blameless because our sins have been taken away. So Job wasn't a perfect man, but he was a blameless man. And in all the malicious charges which have been laid against the people of God down through the years, and especially the false accusations directed against Christ, uh, we see the slanderous activity of the devil. We're in the book of Acts, and we saw that last week. We'll continue that in the sermon today about the rumors, the false allegations against the Apostle Paul that brought about his being beaten. That's pain and suffering, right? And so in Matthew 12:24, he is called Belzebub. Uh, uh, and Belzebub Zebub was a Philistine deity, the Lord of the Flies, and whether by a change of the spelling or by deliberate he- Hebrew comment on the alleged deity, the title became Baal Zebul, uh, which is the Lord of Filth. And so that, that's how he's described in the Bible. He's described in Revelation 12.10 as the accuser of the brethren. And the title there is supplemented 
then also by the titles Devil and Satan. And in Matthew 12, 24, the further thought is present that he is also the Lord of the demons, the boss, the head man. And so we know from what we read in, in, in uh, Scripture that he has access to God's presence. Now, the precise mode of that access is outside of our knowledge. And, but what has been revealed is that as a fallen angel, he's been cast out of heaven. He's reserved for judgment. So Job 1.6, when the sons of God came to present themselves before God, Satan came also among them. His reply to God's question about his activity indicates how widespread his activity is. He comes, uh, he has come, uh, Job 1.7, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. So I think this is an important theological point. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not God. Uh, so he's not omniscient and he's not omnipresent. So if he, if the devil is with you, he can't be with me. Not directly. Now, a few caveats to that. Um, it, it does seem plain that he has a widespread activity, and as a disembodied spirit, I assume he can move rather rapidly. Um, and in addition to this, he has demonic emissaries who are ready to do his bidding and to run his errands. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. Yes, and I think that's, that's a good, very good point. That, this is he's been given, as we're going to see in the case of Job, but in general, he's been given some some ability. We get to Revelation 20, uh, where Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. A very specific limitation is put on him, just as we're going to see. Very specific limitations are put on him in regard to what he can and can't do to Job. So he's, he's like on a leash. Um, so it's at this point that we find, um, well, let me back up here. I lost my place. Um, okay, here we go. To hear God's, uh, God challenging Satan is to uh, have a further window open on the problem of the suffering of the believer. So God presents Job as a rebuke to the devil, to the slanderer, whose blasphemous aim is always to try to discredit the Almighty, and so chapter 1, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job, God says, that there is none like him in the earth? Here's a living repudiation of Satan's slanderous attacks on the integrity of God, for in Job, God's sovereign grace is exemplified. But the slanderer is quick with his reply, and Job is pro- so he says, Job has prospered mightily, uh, so his religious profession hasn't hurt him in any way. Oh, of course Job follows you, believes you, trusts you, because look, look how well Job's doing. Uh, but let God touch his possessions and claims the devil, Job will curse God to his face. And so it's at this point we find not only the continuing mystery of God's dealings, but also a light of encouragement in the darkness. Um, here are two encouraging truths when we face pain or suffering. God permits Satan to do what he wants with Job so long as he doesn't touch him in his person. And, and, and uh, so in the, in the first place, Satan can only act by the permission of God. The Lord does not stand back in helpless frustration, wringing his hands, 
He takes the initiative with Satan and he still retains his controlling power. God is God, not Satan, is the Lord of the universe. So again, we don't know everything. I still, that doesn't explain everything to me. It explains some things to me and to you. Second, Satan's malevolence is held in check, and it's God who prescribes the boundaries beyond which Satan cannot go. And that limit may seem at times to be beyond human endurance, but in fact, the restraining hand of God is always there. And so Paul, for example, has the same thought when he writes to the Corinthians, and he says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So Satan, when unleashed, acts with all of his, all the fury of an embittered adversary. Uh, disasters uh, fall like hammer blows on Job. His children perish. His property is destroyed. There are human and material agencies involved. There are raiding Sabaeans and marauding Chaldeans. There is lightning flashing and uh, with destructive power and tornadoes uh, spreading death in their path. So behind these uh, human factors and these natural calamities, there is an evil power. And we do well to remind ourselves that in this fallen world, it's not just us that are broken, not just us that are fallen. The earth itself, the creation itself is out of order, uh, and so the pains and uh, so so we have pains and diseases, and the suffering and the misery often have an explanation then which lies beyond what's right in front of us. There are other things going on, in other words, that we don't see or understand. And Joe's initial reaction to this catastrophe is really magnificent. He might as well have been overwhelmed. Or, uh, he might have been overwhelmed by his grievous losses. But we don't see any hint of rebellion in him. I thought about this. I know many of you and some who aren't with us today have gone through great suffering. And I've seen how many times people will go to the book of Job. Again, we don't get particular answers, but we go, you know what? This is the word of God. And we see this righteous man, this blameless man, and how he's dealing with this. I want to deal with it the way he deals with it. Um, so his initial reaction uh, is um, the great slander doesn't succeed in enrolling in, in Job as an agent to vilify God. Instead, we find the quiet acquiescence of a man of God who has learned to submit to God's chastening uh, and to still adore God and trust God. And we listen to Job when we learn the right attitude of suffering. In chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, all the calamity that had hit Job and his family, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Now, he didn't know why it happened. He, didn't, he wanted some answers. He, didn't, he couldn't provide an explanation. But his starting place with, was God is good. God is powerful. That's, that's his starting point. God loves me. God is wise. But So in the, the ultimate point in pain hasn't yet been reached. The devil has been thwarted by the continuing godliness of Job, but there is further pain. And so the scene is reenacted, and again, Satan challenged God to consider the integrity of Job. 
And again, the slanderer returns to the attack. This time his allegation is that Job is ready to forfeit everything to save his own skin. Um, Let him taste pain in his body and then he'll curse you. So So Satan claims, and in response, God gives him a little more latitude. God's still in control since his permission is essential and the limit on Satan's activity is still prescribed, but he is permitted to go further and to inflict physical pain so long as Job's life is spared. We can draw two conclusions then about Satan's activities in the realm of suffering. In the first place, he is able to bring sickness. And we're not saying all sickness is brought by Satan. Again, we've talked about the blind man in the New Testament. So again, we shouldn't be presumptuous about things. What we're going to see about Job's friends is they were very presumptuous. They thought they knew exactly why Job was having all these things happen. But God also has the power, uh, the, Satan also has the power to cause death. The very fact that God imposes a restriction that Job's life is to be spared is an indication that except for that restraint, the devil could go further and take Job's life. But the statement that he has the power to inflict both illness and death must still be set firmly in the context of God's sovereign power. Remember, God is revealing to us in his word things about himself. He's not telling us everything. He's not giving us details. It's like a parent reassuring a child. I'm here. You can trust me. I've got this. No, I can't. I'm not going to explain all of it to you. You couldn't understand it if I did. Um, so God's ultimate aim, of course, is far removed from what Satan ha- is far removed from what Satan has in view. As the great adversary, he plans only injury and loss. But the sovereign God has purposes in view, which He will achieve through the devil's malicious activity, namely the blessing of His people and ultimately the manifestation of His own glory. Mary and I were talking this morning on the way about some of this uh, on the way to church, and just uh, the world. The world's central problem is selfishness. I want to be God. I want to do what I want to do, and I, want, I don't want bad results for anything I do, and I want only good results, and I want what I want. And that's, that was the sin in the garden. And, it, and the sin is essentially this. I believe that I am the center of the universe and that everything should serve me and my pleasure. And part of what God is teaching us is we are not the center of the universe. He is. And everything serves his glory. We're creatures, not God. What happened was Satan didn't remain in his place. He left his estate. He left his place. And he fell. What happened to man? He left his place as a creature. And he fell. He's not in in the right place. What the gospel does is brings us back to the right place. So we can start again. And what is that? Self-denial is the starting place. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is Lord. He's the center. In him, all things consist. So we could go on, but that's a lot of what's going on here. So all this activity in the heavenly realm, however, is hidden from Job. Job doesn't know about this conversation. All he knows is the further agony of intense physical pain as his whole body is covered with sores And at this point, we encounter two diverse reactions. His wife responds with angry bitterness, which is the normal reaction of sinful people. And she says to him, curse God and die. What's the point of life in the face of such misery? 
And the question's often asked, and tragically it's answered sometimes by suicide. But Job still shows his godliness as he submits to this fresh discipline from the Lord. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 10, Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? It's now the greatest, the great debate begins. Uh, Job's three friends, and I think they were his friends, they probably meant well, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, they are shocked at his horrible condition and their obvious grief at his plight. They've shown up. That's a good thing. Yet their speech, as their speeches develop, it becomes increasingly clear that their sympathy isn't enough. Indeed, sympathy without wisdom easily degenerates into judgment. And censure, and along with the advice, uh, along with advice that does not spring from the Word of God, it soon turns into a sort of blame. Certainly, they may uh, they say many things that are true, but their fundamental argument is false. What is their basic fallacy? It's one which continues through the three cycles of speeches and is advocated with increasing severity. It's quite simply that great suffering implies great sinfulness. Job, you must have really done something awful. We don't know what it is, but surely that's evident. Uh, Otherwise, you wouldn't be suffering like this. And, of course, they weren't suffering, so they were also making some commentary on themselves, right? Uh, I'm not suffering like you, so I must be righteous. And you, what, what is it that you've done to cause all this? So if Job has suffered so much, again, he must have sinned in some grievous way. Their view is that judgment on sin always happens in this world. That's a fallacy. If then a man suffers, it must be the judgment of God which he's facing. By the way, there's a reverse argument for this. Uh, Sometimes people who are wealthy and prosperous think that that they are that because they're good. Well, God blesses me because I do what I'm supposed to do. And you don't. You must not or you'd be like me. You'd have all these nice things and you'd be healthy and wealthy and wise. Like me. That's, a, that's the flip side of this fallacy. In a sense, that's what Job's friends thought about themselves. So um, Eliphaz puts it in, ter- in terms of a question. Who ever perished being innocent? Or where, uh, or where were the righteous cut off? So the three friends emphasize great truths about God. Eliphaz stresses his moral, God's moral perfection. Bildad, his unwavering justice, and Zophar, his, uh, his omniscience. But they don't seem to know much about the grace and the mercy of the Lord or of his wisdom, which doesn't operate simply in the context of this present world. Um, remember, Paul's going to talk about this, and the things that we suffer are not to be compared to the glories that follow. Not to even be compared to them. So there is another, we have to put all this in context. So as a result, each one surpasses the other in severity until Zophar reaches the conclusion that Job really has received less than he deserves. You think you got it bad, you really, you must have done something really bad. You probably ought to have it all, be worse off than you are. So throughout the argument, uh, remain, the, the argument remains the same. Suffering is God's judgment on sin, and the depth of a man's suffering is an indicator of the greatness of his sinfulness. In face of the sustained barrage, Job protests his integrity. There is no hidden sin of which he's guilty and for which he's suffering, and yet under pressure, Job begins to say things 
which he's going to bitterly regret. He acknowledges the hand of God in it all and rightly points to the fallacy that's in their arguments uh, for the wicked quite obviously prosper, right? That's, we see that in the Psalms. David's complaining frequently and other psalmists about why the wicked seem to be doing so well. But then there's another note creeps in. He feels desperately the remoteness of God, a feeling which often comes in a time of great suffering. C.S. Lewis talks about this uh, in his own grief. Uh, His sense of God's irresistible power, though, fills him with fear. And so he complains at God's apparent lack of concern in the face of 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 injustice and of the wicked, and God, he claims, pays no attention to the prayers of the sufferer. Chapter 24, verse 12. God's just not listening. Lewis said, I went to God and all I heard was the slamming of a door and bolting and double bolting. Yet in all the turmoil of soul and even in the midst of his complaints against God, and Roy talked recently about lament, and I think that's what we have here is this lamentation. Uh, Nevertheless, there are rays of light which show the depths of true faith. So the majesty of God makes him long for a referee or an umpire uh, who, who might stand between, between them and plead Job's case. And then in a rare moment of insight, he speaks triumphantly of that need being met. Job 19, verses 25 through 27. Imagine, he's in the middle of this. This isn't like at the end and now I'm reflecting from what happened three years ago. In the very midst, the very peak of his uh, storm, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives and he, shall, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, And my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What an amazing prayer. What amazing faith. There's one more important contribution to the debate, though, before God replies. Uh, Elihu doesn't have the final answer. That's going to come from God. Yet he has a lot to say that is profoundly true. So this is a fourth person. Uh, where Job's frustrated agony led the sufferer to irreverence, Elihu replies with a firm insistence on a reverent attitude before God. So in Job 34.10, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. He's waited and listened to these older men, Job's friends, speak, and finally he says, i got to say something. Listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness, and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. In other words, this is not unjust. This is there's there's an explanation. There there are something under this. And so one lesson which even a godly man like Job still needs to learn is the stubborn persistence of human pride. In this pride, uh, it, it's this pride which God humbles in the misery of our suffering. We become very dependent in those moments. Suffering isn't, however, a meaningless experience. Uh, it's the method of discipline which God employs for our ultimate benefit. Um, again, we get so self-absorbed in a moment that we, we have a hard time seeing beyond our noses. Elihu ends his speech with an emphasis which anticipates the grandeur of God's own reply. And instead of trying to find our, uh, find our answers to the problem of pain within the narrow confines of our little world, we need to lift our thoughts to God. 
Now, notice, remember, when I started this, and Lewis, the same thing, I didn't say this is easy. It's hard. It's really hard. But instead of trying to find, uh, uh, again, answers right in front of us, the glory of creation all around us displays the power of the Creator. And that's what God's going to say to Job. I made the world. I take care of all the animals. I set the stars in their courses. I call them all by name. I measure them in a span, from his thumb to his little finger. That's the universe. That's who I am, God says. But while we can detect the we can't uh, we can detect the edges of his ways, there is a depth of glory which we can't plumb, and before which we just have to bow in silence. Uh, Job thirty six twenty six. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. Neither can the number of his years be searched out. In other words, he's infinite. So until that day when in my flesh I shall see God, there will be great and unresolved mysteries. Uh, Where we rebel against God's dealing, we shall only flail more miserably in the darkness. And where we learn to submit humbly to his providence, even when the way is very dark, we will find the light of the the presence of God illuminating uh, our path. Um, so again, this is, this is very fundamental. What, essentially, what God is going to answer to Job is, "I'm way bigger than you, and I've got you." I told Mary, I don't like that answer. I want more details, please. And Job wanted a lot of details, and he told God, "I have a bunch of questions for you." And what does what does God say? Tell you what, I'll answer. I may, I'll, I'll entertain your questions, but first, you have a seat. I've got some questions for you first. Where were you when I created the world? And he goes on for several pages, and so we'll get to the, how Job responds to that in a moment. Elihu was prepared, has prepared the way for a great finale of this dramatic poem. God speaks, and before His word, Job is brought. Low in penitence because of the foolishness that he's spoken. And God's answer doesn't reply to many of Job's agonizing questions. And God doesn't answer all of our questions. God clearly won't be put in the dock. He won't be put on trial to be cross-examined by his creatures. He will give answers, but they're freely given, not because he submits to the scrutiny of us. Indeed, his reply follows a completely different line. It's to display the overwhelming majesty and greatness of God beside which man appears in his puny weakness. The Lord lays out, again, the wonders of creation, and at every point man is a hopeless onlooker. The pounding of the ocean and the light of the midday sun, the torrential rain, the ice gripping the surface of the lake, the quiet breezes and the flashing lightning, the complex life of the animal of animal creation, with a lion, a hippopotamus, a crocodile, all creation tells a great story. How great is our God and how worthy of praise. And so, set in the midst of God's sweeping survey of creation is an interjection in which he rebukes Job and indeed all of us who are ready to bring charges against him, against the Lord. Verse four, Chapter 40, verse 2, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty, correct him. He who rebukes God, let him answer it. So Job's immediate response to the rebuke 
is penitence. He's sorry. And he doesn't capitulate to the charges of his friends who suggest that his righteousness was a pretense. And God himself, in his later rebuke to the friends, will vindicate Job's integrity. Uh, Being the godly man that he is, Job knows that he has spoken foolishly, rashly, hastily. And so the valley of suffering can lead the most godly person into contemplating some false notions about God uh, and letting the inner resentment fester until it produces sinful attitudes and words, thoughts. But Job has learned his lesson, a lesson that every suffering saint should learn. And I think one of my favorite verses in the whole book of Job is chapter 40 and verse 4. If I can just uh, put it in terms of southernism, well, shut my mouth. Verse 40, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand over my mouth. So that's where God brought Job in his suffering, to that point, to that moment where he's sitting there silently before God, realizing who he is, who who he is himself, as well as who God is, a bigger glimpse, if you will. And it's in that attitude of humility and submission that he is able to listen with a deeper wonder to God's further words. As the glory of the Lord continues to unfold, so he humbles himself before God, and in that abasement and submission he finds peace. Chapter 42, verse 5. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Think about that verse. What he's saying is, I've, I've gone to Bible studies. I've read the Bible. I've heard about you. I've learned about you. But now I see you. I know you. There's a qualitative difference in Job. So the book of Job furnishes various answers to the problem of suffering of the righteous. The replies of the prologue, the reply of the prologue is that a test of genuineness of character of man of the man of God and one which demonstrates the grace of God to the watching world. And the answer of the three friends that suffering implies personal sinfulness is exposed as inadequate. And Elihu's contribution, by contrast, expresses the truth that suffering is a means of discipline in perfecting the saints. We see Job, this blameless man, growing through this suffering and this pain to a greater knowledge of God, a greater awareness of who he is and who God is, a greater reliance upon God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The ultimate solution is found in the fresh revelation of the sovereignty of God. There will always be a profound mystery which is beyond man's wisdom to penetrate, and the path of submission is the way to peace. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But while suffering remains a mystery, we're not simply left with a thought, uh, with the thought of God as the majestic one. He is also, and this is really critical, the gracious one who comes to the godly in his time of trial. And it was, it was, it wasn't after his, his restoration to health and prosperity that Job found peace. This is really important or interesting. It wasn't 
after his, it was not after his restoration to health and prosperity that Job found peace, but he found peace while he was still suffering. He hadn't found all the answers, but he had come to see his own pride in his insistence that he must have all the answers. So he bowed in worship before the Almighty and found himself not like some stoic submitting to the cold, to a cold, relentless fate, but like a child in the darkness gripping his father's arm. The lesson was one which a suffering saint of the New Testament also learned as he too listened to the voice of God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul, who is suffering some thorn in the flesh, certainly Job had a thorn in the flesh, and God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul echoes the spirit of the submission of Job as he replies, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Now, the sermon today, as we see Paul uh, speaking to the crowd at the temple in Jerusalem that has tried to kill him, is going to have some application of these very principles. We're going to see Paul is applying some of these very ideas in his own trial, his own suffering, and his own perspective, how he looks at things, how he looks at the circumstances, the difficulties, the tragedies, uh, the suffering. In his case, he'd just been beaten up severely, barely escaped with his life. And that happened to Paul on more than one occasion. And we see how he looks at that. Perspective is critical. When we become self-absorbed, which we're tempted to do, uh, that's where the trouble really takes root and uh, can take us down. So, Father, we thank you for your word that reveals what we need to know. It doesn't always satisfy every question we have, but you have, you have graciously told us what we couldn't know if you hadn't spoken. And then we would just be left groping in darkness. But you have given us truth. You have given us light. You have given us hope. You have given us instruction. You've revealed yourself. You've revealed, uh, uh, you, you have made revelation to us about ourselves in our weakness. Help us to see that, Lord. Help us to trust you and walk with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.